and welcome to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation, where we unearth new stories and research from the world of academia. This episode is all about pain. No, we are not a bunch of sadists here at The Conversation, but we will be exploring how and why humans experience pain and the efforts that are underway to better minimise or numb it. We'll also be discussing the morals of designing robots that can feel pain, but more on that later. First up, what actually is pain and how do you measure it? I spoke to Katerina Fotopolu, a reader in psychology at University College London, who is in charge of a research programme called The Pain Project. To get to grips with pain, she says, we need to understand the mind-body relationship. The whole mind-body issue is mostly evoked by anything to do with pain. That is because pain is it's really at the heart of the mind-body problem. Uh, but mind and body are the same thing. In the, in the case of biological matter, in this case, pain is first foremost, and it should be, a mind concept. So pain is something that people understand with their mind. But it is done by the brain. The mere fact that I say the brain has anything to do with the pain, it should be clear, is because there is so much background. Personal background, social background, emotional background, bodily background. So the brain is the organ that serves the mind, but the brain is the organ that combines a lot of information from the body to decide on things that the mind also sort of becomes aware of eventually. This is because pain starts in the brain. If you cut your finger, the nerves in your finger will relay this information via your central nervous system to your brain. Your brain then processes the information, combining the physical with a host of existing cognitive data, such as past experiences, cultural norms and beliefs. It also takes into account other sensory data, such as what else is going on around you at the time. The result is an incredibly subjective experience. Take this example of soldiers in the heat of battle. So there are long-known reports of soldiers, for example. So people in, in war, in battle, experiencing horrific things on their body, but reporting, feeling subjectively no pain. So what does that mean? Does it mean that the brain has no pain? Well, that's a bad question to ask because the brain never has pain. What it simply means is that there's aspects of the brain that are processing context, in this case war, and there are aspects of the brain that are processing subjectivity. And the context aspect, the war aspect, is saying to the subjectivity part, please, you know, this is not relevant right now, we don't have time to worry about your leg, we need to stay alive. And there are other times where, you know, people don't have anything to detect in their body, but the brain is saying, you are in pain. And so these people rightfully say, it's not in my mind. I really do have pain. And they're right. Of course, pain is always in the mind, but it's not, you know, caused necessarily by the mind. It's always caused somewhere between the body and the brain. Katerina says it's important to recognise that our perception of pain is also something that humans learn. We're not born with it. And social relations are key. So pain is actually built in the interaction with other people. The example I always bring is you see a child playing in the playground. Child falls down. Um, what's the first thing they do? Sometimes they'll cry. They may look at the body to see what happened. But most often, any parent, any person who spent time around kids will tell you that they sort of freeze. 
and they look around for the reaction of the adult. Pain is very subjective. The child will look around, and depending on the reaction of the caregiver, they will then experience it as though something important happened to the body or something not important happened in the body. The reaction of the caregiver is inbuilt in development, in our appreciation, our mind and brain appreciation of what pain is. This continues throughout our lives. And there is a part of pain that is all about emotion. It's not about what touched me in the hand, but how I felt about what touched me. Good or did it feel bad? Did it feel threatening or did it feel safe? Did it make me want to move or did it make me stay put? This aspect of pain, this aspect of sensation, perception more generally, including this aspect of pain, are most susceptible to social context. They are the ones that are most deterred by our social history. So pain is clearly not just a physical thing. Many, of course, will also be familiar with emotional pain, whether it's rejection or exclusion, the loss of a loved one or heartache. It turns out that emotional and physical pain are interrelated. And there is a theory that humans developed feelings of social pain as part of their evolution. So because social relationships are so important in evolution, they're so important for mammals and particularly humans, they offer protection, they offer safety, they offer procreation opportunities. Evolution needed to develop a system of social connection. It needed to make sure humans have a primary motivation to stay close, to build society, to stay with their families. So it gave them, according to this theory, feelings that have to do with feeling pain as soon as they are not in a good social proximity or good social relationship. So anything that signals the lack of social relationship takes the form of a psychological pain. This is still a theory, but Katerina says recent brain imaging studies provide evidence of how linked psychological and social pain are. One study in Katerina's lab has found some interesting results when pain is administered to people in varying environments of social support. They studied people's reactions to pain in the presence of different observers. Some who were deemed to be caring and empathetic, and others who were described as the opposite. Depending on the personality of the individual, and particularly the personality around social relationships and trust, they have certain tendencies around pain. So for example, if they are um, uh, what we call th- their attachment is one that prefers to cope with things alone under stress and mistrusts other people in their capacity to help, then they will not care so much about what the observer is doing and how empathic they are, but they certainly care about the observer being there in the sense that they pre- prefer to cope with pain alone. And so they show increased subjective ratings of pain. Interestingly, in these individuals, even though they're bothered by the observer and they feel more painful when somebody is there, their heart rate and skin conductance actually looks like everybody else. So it's actually down-regulated by the presence of the observer. It's complex. You know, it's an easy answer in the sense that the mind and the brain don't always tell us the same story. Once again, this shows the mind-body conundrum. Everyone is different. And these differences in people's mental states, their personalities, their social relationships as well as their physiology, have to be taken into account when it comes to treating pain, which can take a more physical or mindful route. So if certain people can be treated in a mindful way, we have good indication to believe that that's possible. And for certain other people, it might be that a brain-based or a body-based treatment is a better course to follow. 
So there isn't a clear-cut answer here. Certainly both are possible. That was Katerina Fotopoulou, a reader in UCL's psychology unit. We'll be taking a closer look into different approaches to treating pain later in the podcast. But before that, we are turning our attention to robots. Have you ever watched one of those videos online of a robot falling over? To some, they're like a hilarious piece of slapstick comedy. But others wince on behalf of these machines, as if their cold, hard metal could feel pain from the crash. Maybe it wouldn't be such a bad thing if robots could feel pain and learn from the experience. Whether or not we should give robots the ability to feel pain is an issue that roboticists are beginning to grapple with. The conversations science editor Stephen Harris investigates. Pain is incredibly useful. It might be nasty to experience, but it stops us from doing serious damage to ourselves. So as we look to introduce robots into more and more situations in our lives, including some quite dangerous ones, should we be thinking about giving them the ability to feel pain as a way to protect themselves? The problem is that it's a pretty significant moral decision to create a being and enable it to feel pain. I spoke to two academics to see how close we are to tackling some of these issues. What I found out was that it's as much to do with our own experience of seeing something in pain as it is to do with whatever's actually feeling it. My name is Connor McGinn. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Engineering in Trinity College, Dublin. Connor builds robots for a living. He's just unveiled a prototype robot that could help care for elderly and disabled people. It's like a big version of some of the smart home devices you can get now that can turn on your lights or TV with a simple request, but with the added advantage of being able to have more of a conversation and a bigger physical presence that gives more of a human-like social interaction. What's the weather like outside? I'm afraid it's not looking good. There is rain due from noon. One day we could see robots carrying out much more physical tasks that could potentially put them in harm's way, cooking or carrying heavy loads, for example. And that, Connor says, is where something like pain might come in handy. In the most simplest, simplistic terms, pain is a, a feedback mechanism that lets the robot know if something's not right, if something's gone wrong. There's two obvious ways in which that's useful. The first is, is if something in the robot does break down or, or stops working, that the robot itself understands that that's happened. Uh, also, in applications where robots are working alongside people, which there might not be too many today, but certainly there, there will be, you know, over the next number of years, then having the robot being able to, you know, in the same way humans do, you know, have some sort of, of communication uh, externally that, that something's gone wrong, which effectively the pain does that when, you know, we can tell if an animal uh, is, is, is suffering from pain by its behavior. If, if, if similar characteristics are on robots, then perhaps as well, we can, we can tell something's not right uh, from the outside. So pain would let a robot and the people working with it know if there was something wrong. The word pain is, is, is something that is quite subjective in its interpretation. Absolutely. A more technical description might be just some sort of feedback mechanism that can communicate uh, to the outside world that something's not right. Um, and then, you know, internally also be able to understand if something's not right and diagnose itself. Do you think there would be any advantage from that practical point of view of, of having something that was more than just a signal that, that moved towards something more like an emotional 
feeling of pain or or something that we you know that was closer to like a human experience providing obviously that we're far enough down the road to the where we might have the technology for that it really depends as well on the application of the robot so when we talk about robots there's uh, potentially a lot of ambiguity there for it if, if it's a situation where the robot is dealing with people especially over long periods of time it's, it's very different if you're dealing with, pe- with people over short periods of time where you know perhaps you, maybe it's a cashier in a shop or something like this where you know you don't actually need to be able to model the personalities of the the people that you're interacting with. Uh, that's very different when you're when you're in care situations or any kind of situation where over time um, you're going to have interactions with the same kind of people. In those circumstances, you know the, the better that the, the robot's kind of control system models or you know can understand what a human personality model looks like, then you know the greater degree of, of interaction is, is potentially possible. So for those instances. You know, if, if robots do have the capacity to be able to, you know, not only exhibit pain themselves, but also have some sort of a grounding that they can interpret behavior and understand it through their own states. If it's possible that, you know, machines that can learn are able to do this sort of thing, then I guess the, the effort to understand robots becomes less uh, and the effort to program them becomes less as well. Are we talking about a sort of robot version of empathy, where the robot has more of a sense of understanding, if you will, about what a human situation might be? Especially, I mean, the robots you build are for caring, social care and that kind of thing. So if a, if a robot sort of knew what pain was, uh, might it help them carry out their duty of caring for humans better? I think so. I think so. In general, when we're developing robots to interact with people, what we're what we're trying to do is achieve with a term called least collaborative effort. That means that from from both the robot and the human's perspective, you don't need to do um, a lot of work to be able to understand one another. We really want to minimize how complicated or how difficult it is to interpret behavior. If it's somehow able to interpret human human behavior in terms of its own behavior, and similarly, the robot's designed to exhibit behavior that a human can understand, then the difficulty in communication lessens significantly. The robot doesn't need to have empathy in order for it to, to, to work well, to function well. It's, it's sort of like the, the, the old kind of saying, if it walks like a duck and it moves like a duck, then, then it is a duck. It, it's, it's very much you know, behavior driven. And if it's a situation where we're, we're trying to develop uh, robots that can interact with people, then what we're effectively looking for is the behavior of the robot to do what we hope it'll do and match what it can do. And by developing kind of, you know, control systems in place, perhaps that, that are able to model the states of, of pain and empathy, then, you know, perhaps the interactions become easier for people. And similarly, people can understand the robot's behavior in the same way they would others. There's a kind of a hypothesis, you know, called the media equation, which kind of, and there's a lot of evidence behind it. And it shows quite clearly that people do tend to treat computers um, and other, you know, media-based artifacts, whether that's robots or, or, or you know, it might be an AI program, uh, they tend to treat them as humans. So, like I said, the, the more we can, the more we can leverage that from a design perspective, then the closer we move towards this principle of least collaborative effort. There are clear advantages to a robot being able to feel something like pain, but the closer this gets to what humans might think of as pain, the more philosophical questions it raises. Dr. Beth Singler is a researcher at Cambridge University's Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. She's up for an award for a short film she made called Pain in the Machine, which looks at these very questions. I asked her if she's reached any conclusion yet. Should robots be able to feel pain? Well, we we present a few different conclusions in the film. That our aim is to uh, engender a conversation. So we've got experts on sort of on both sides: those who say yes, and those who say no, and those who say it's just not possible at all. My my stance as an anthropologist is that humans will impute pain on behalf of animate objects like robots, whether they actually experience something like pain or not. So does that mean 
it almost doesn't matter whether we actually give robots the ability to feel pain or something like it from our point of view of interacting with them. I think there's a moral philosophy question there as to whether it matters or not as sort of in sense of what we choose to do. At the stage of technology as it is now, we're still seeing people understanding robots as being in pain, whether they are or not. So some of the examples we have in the film are from DARPA robots being pushed or shoved over Boston Dynamics robots as well. And the reactions to those that I study as an anthropologist are fascinating that humans will go oh no or some will laugh and that's because humans bring in the animate and the inanimate into their understanding of what could potentially be a being and that's that's absolutely fascinating. There was another question I was wondering about which was whether firstly whether a robot could ever really actually feel pain as we would know it, but also whether we'd ever really know. Um, my experience of pain, for all I know, may be different to yours. How on earth we'd ever know whether a robot was feeling what we feel is another question. And, and maybe, again, it, it kind of points us back to the, the, the issue of it almost doesn't matter exactly what they're feeling, but it matters more what we think they're feeling. I think, I think that's a really interesting question and we, we are stuck to a certain level to subjectivities and I think that's interesting why science fiction returns again and again to these ideas of tests. So we've had the most recent Blade Runner film which again reignites our interest in the empathy test. I mean, even in the real world, Alan Turing devised a test to try and prove artificial intelligence, not entirely successfully, that's a whole other debate. Um, but we, we have to have this idea of how we prove these these elements. So I'm not entirely convinced at the moment we're anywhere close to getting that kind of test going. But as a, as a repeating trope in science fiction narratives, it's very effective. The other question I think this raises is whether it's an ethical thing to do, create a being that can experience pain. Because you could argue if you're, you're going to do that, you're effectively causing them pain. Would it not be better and more moral, more ethical? to create something that doesn't have that kind of experience. Yeah, that's certainly an argument in our short film. So Marta Helena says, if you're going to create a, 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 a robot that can feel pain, then it surely has, should have also the right to be free from pain. Uh, and then conversely, someone else suggests that perhaps one of the important aspects of human consciousness is the pain experience, the experience of that experience. And if, if hypothetically we want to move towards AI and robots that are closer and closer to human-like, closer and closer to conscious, whatever that is, then perhaps pain is an important stepping stone in that direction. It feels like this whole debate is a bit of a proxy for asking what a human really is. Yeah, that is actually, it feels like the fundamental of my research. I mean, everyone focuses on the robots and the artificial intelligence. But again, we, we, we see our humanity in reflections of others. I, I was very interested recently, the, the case of Sophia, the Hansen robot, who was made a citizen of Saudi Arabia. And the rights granted to a robotic form really highlights where rights are lacking for other human forms and historically and contextually and culturally we've defined personhood in so many different ways and so many different groups have been included or in excluded more prominently. So robots that look like they're in pain and perhaps even act like they're in pain are something we might have to get used to in the near future. Whether robots could or should actually feel pain is a question we're a long way from answering but it's such a complex one it certainly seems worthwhile starting to tackle it now. Plus, we'll probably learn something about ourselves while we're doing it. Stephen Harris there, the Conversations Science Editor. From whether or not we should create things that can feel and even benefit from pain, we switch now to human efforts to remove it entirely. 
In fact, the ability to banish pain has been one of the great boons of modern medicine. Unfortunately, the most effective painkillers are based on opium. And like opium, they are addictive and sometimes lethal. So why don't we have anything better? Clint Witchells, our health editor, spoke to two pain experts to find out. Opioids are powerful painkillers. They're also deadly. In the US, opioid overdose is now the leading cause of death in people under the age of 50, and it's linked to the death of tens of thousands of people a year. The situation is so serious that President Trump recently declared it a national emergency. So what is it about drugs like Vicodin and Tramadol that make them so deadly? I called up Marcus Rattray, Professor of Pharmacology at the University of Bradford, to help explain. As well as controlling pain, opioids act on other areas of the central nervous system. So they actually control the activity of the nerve fibres which uh, are responsible to keep us breathing. And so those nerves become inactive and the breathing becomes dangerously low. It's called hyperventilation and that can cause death. Part of the reason for the spike in opioid overdose deaths in recent years is a rise in addiction. As doctors began prescribing more opioid painkillers to their patients for chronic pain, more people became addicted. When they couldn't get the prescription drugs anymore, some of these people turned to stronger street-level drugs such as heroin and fentanyl, which are very dangerous. Marcus explained why opioids are so addictive. So addiction is a bit more complicated, but basically the opioids can cause pleasure. That's why we, we first use them. So, for example, morphine, uh, a very common opioid, is the name comes from the Greek god of dreaming. So they cause this sort of sleepy sensation, which is also rather pleasurable, and that essentially makes people want to take them again and again and again. And that can then lead to addiction through a number of biological phenomena. It's this addiction that leads to so many opioid deaths and why scientists are searching for different kinds of pain relief that aren't so addictive, also deadly. Before we talk about alternatives, it's worth trying to understand how opioid painkillers actually work to stop pain. I called up Andrew Moore. I'm from the Nuffield Division of Anaesthetics in the University of Oxford, and I'm an honorary senior research fellow there, now partially retired. Andrew says pain is incredibly complex. There are so many different pathways uh, from the point where the needle goes into your finger or the joint is beginning to ache all the way up to your brain and back again. Andrew explains that the drug binds to what are called opioid receptors. These are proteins on the surface of nerve cells. They're found in the brain, spinal cord and in the gut. And that starts off a cascade of chemical processes. And what they do when they're working for pain is that they block pain signals. It's as simple as that. They're very, very good at blocking pain signals in, in many, many people. And they're very, very good at it in certain circumstances. But not in all circumstances. Here's Marcus to explain. So one example is migraine. That's a type of pain that's not very responsive to opioids at all. But also some of the chronic pain states, uh, so the so-called neuropathic pain. And there, there are a number of other drugs which are used. Where they won't, they won't, don't work well, if you like, for regular pain. But things like gabapentin and pregabalin and amitriptyline, which have been developed for other conditions, but those are reasonably effective in neuropathic pain, or at least in some types of neuropathic pain. Neuropathic pain, that's usually a shooting or burning pain, such as that caused by sciatica. And although drugs like gabapentin and pregabalin work quite well for this type of pain, they're also addictive and potentially deadly. 
So we still need new types of drugs, both safer opioids and non-opioid painkillers. One possible option is to make drugs based on cannabis. And certainly there's good evidence that cannabinoids are effective in pain. So, you know, cannabis can, can be a good uh, painkiller. However, when people have drilled down to sort of understanding why it is that cannabinoids work and they've created new drugs against specific um, enzymes in the so-called cannabinoid system, we found drugs that don't work in the clinic or uh, are even toxic. So people, we still haven't found what, what are the parts and components of cannabis which might be effective. But there are other avenues of research to find a replacement kind of painkiller. Researchers in France, for example, are working on a new painkiller inspired by spit. A substance in spit called opiorphin stops the body breaking down its own natural opioid, called enkephalin. Enkephalin is rapidly broken down by enzymes in the body, but the substance found in spit slows this process down. So far, though, the drug has only been tested in rats. You can also try to target um, or produce medicines which, which absolutely mimic natural opioids, which, for example, those ones that are only found in the spinal cord. That concept should allow you a painkiller that doesn't produce the addictive or, or tolerance effects that, that, are, that are so problematic, or the overdose effects. And certainly there are people trying that. But for Marcus, the most promising approach are drugs called ion channel blockers. So when nerves fire, they uh, require ion channels to open. And it's broadly speaking, there are sodium uh, channels, potassium channels, and also sensory neurons have these particular type of channels called trip channels. Now, in chronic pain states, we've known for about 15, 20 years, that the nerves uh, fire abnormally and they're starting to switch on certain channels. So that gives you the, the concept that they're very selective drug targets. These ion channels are only active when neurons fire pain signals. And so targeting those should, at least in theory, hold the most promise. And there are a number of companies looking at uh, um, sodium channel uh, medicines, potassium channel medicines, and also these trip uh, channel medicines. And those should be particularly good in types of neuropathic pain. We, we just have to be hopeful. It is frustrating that um, we don't currently have any better uh, medications than opioids but I think it is a matter of time. So how soon will it be before one of these experimental drugs reaches the market? Well I mean if you ask any pharmacologist like myself we'll always say five to ten years. Um, it takes a while for a clinical trial to work I don't think there's a magic solution just around the corner, but people are working really, really hard on it. And as Andrew Moore explains, there are many hurdles to getting new drugs approved. The, the research that we do in the laboratory, particularly research done on experimental animals, is not particularly predictive of what drug will work or not work in the clinic. And there are a variety of reasons for that, most of them possibly about quality, but it may be that some of the stuff that we've learned over the past two or three or four decades might have to be relearned. And again, that's a pretty much a personal view from, from evidence I know that's out there. So that, that's, that is a technical difficulty, is trying to say, well, we've got a molecule, can we make it work? Hard to do. And then there are political challenges. The second thing that is difficult, and this is particularly the case for pharmaceutical companies, is recognizing what success is. 
If a drug to treat nerve pain caused by diabetes works for 30% of patients, that's not really seen as a big number by pharmaceutical firms. But, you know, a 30% success rate stated boldly would make most pharmaceutical companies run for the hills. And that's an exceptionally good result. You know, in something like fibromyalgia, if we were seeing a 5% success rate or a 10% success rate, that would be an exceptionally good result. Fibromyalgia is a chronic condition that causes pain all over the body, including in the muscles and joints. Nobody knows what causes it. And that's where politics comes in. Because you can come up with drugs like that, and we have drugs like that. But some regulatory authorities, such as the European Medicines Association, has turned those drugs down. They say they're not good enough. Now, the reality is that we haven't got anything better but they're prepared to have people with fibromyalgia, which is a devastating condition, not treated with anything or treated with things that are known not to work rather than having at least an approach which might give 10 or 20 or 30 percent of them such good relief that they would be back to normal. It may be a while before we overcome these hurdles, but in the meantime, we should use what we've got more sensibly, says Marcus. I think it's also important to say that opioids can be used safely. They're not necessarily dangerous drugs. One of the big differences between the US and countries like the UK and and Europe is that opioids are very well regulated in Europe. We can't just go in and buy them over the counter. We can't buy vast quantities of them. And so actually just some caution about their use is is a simple and practical way to make them more safe. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with opioids. It's just they have to be used correctly and, and used fairly restrictively. Of course, there is another way to reduce pain that doesn't require painkillers. Well, and I think it's also important to say if you find better treatments for those causes of pain, for example arthritis, then the pain will go away. So one way of treating pain is to try to treat the disease that uh, is producing the pain. And that, of course, is another story altogether, but one where we, we really hope to find better uh, treatments of, of, of these, these conditions which underlie the chronic pain and misery that, that so many people feel. That was Marcus Rattray and Andrew Moore talking to The Conversation's health editor, Clint Witchells. That's it for this episode of The Ant Hill. Sign up to The Conversation's free newsletter to get a daily dose of news analysis and opinion from experts in their field. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share the love with your friends and even give us a review online. That would be wonderful. Finally, a big thanks as ever to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly, with research help from Alice Burriez. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.